Welcome to episode 12 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And joining us again after a fairly lengthy period away is Mr. Mark Adams. Welcome back, Mark. Hello. Great to be back. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, anytime. Good. It's great to have you back and especially to discuss one of the early pivotal issues. We're in that string of first appearances and first issues kind of episodes. Today yes. we are discussing Avengers Volume 1, Issue 1. Oh, yes. Good stuff. Oh, yes. Good stuff. Written by Stan Lee, penciled by Jack Kirby, inked by Dick Ayers, lettered by Sam Rosen, cover date of September 1963, release date of July 2nd, 1963, and it came in at number 12 on the countdown, as you probably guessed, by the episode number. Yep. Uh, this is what one of the the first first issue ones I've ever read, uh, well before I read the first Spider-Man one. Uh, it's one of those issues that I enjoy a lot and reread every now and again. Okay. Yeah, this is one of... One of my earlier ones, I don't remember the exact sequence. Uh, people who've heard other episodes of the podcast may recall that when Marvel first came out with the Masterworks, they did a bunch of important first issues. Mm -hmm. Fantastic Four, X-Men, and that was X-Men number one, not Giant Size. The Incredible Hulk and Avengers were all in that series. I don't remember the exact sequence I read them because they came out over the span of a few weeks and we mm -hmm. bought them outside release order. But yeah, I first read this in that Marvel Masterworks number one, or Marvel Milestone Edition number one, to show off what the Masterworks were going to look like <laughs> way back in the early 90s. You were, you were quite fortunate, because my first time was with the Essentials, so it was colorless. Mm -hmm. And it was the first Essential I bought, was the Avengers one, and later on, Marvel UK published uh, these monthly volumes of Avengers stuff, so three comics at once. Uh, starting with the first issue of Volume 3, but they had a backup of the original Avengers story, so you got the full color in that, and it was quite amazing. Oh, nice. Or avenging. Yeah, however you like to put it. So, All right, so shall we jump into the plot synopsis here? I think so, yes. Yep, so this is the story that brought the original lineup of the Avengers together, which may have some surprising members for those who haven't read the issue before, considering mm. that... You know, there's, I would say that they've got the, the big three of the Avengers, right? Thor, Iron Man, and Captain America are kind of the three prominent yes. mainstay members. Only two of them are appear in this issue, as longtime listeners will know, because we've already covered when number three joined in a later issue. Oh, that was a long time ago. <laughs> yep. But yeah, this starts off actually picking up on the continuity of the Thor title at this point, because Loki had been banished to the Island of Silence and been prohibited from setting foot on Earth after the problems he'd caused in Thor's title, which at the time was still Journey into Mystery. He didn't have Thor quite mm -hmm. yet. Uh, but he said, okay, well, he can kind of go through a loophole in the phrasing, not physically appearing on Earth, but reaching out with his magic powers to influence events on Earth, always with the goal of destroying Thor. Mm -hmm. As much as the comic book Loki lacks nobility, he also appreciates a challenge, so he refuses to take on Thor in the form of Donald Blake, even though he knows his secret identity, and instead is looking for an agent he can manipulate to take on Thor on his behalf, and he encounters the Hulk, whose title had been cancelled at this point. Yes, how long ago had it been? Maybe a year since? I don't think it was a full year, because this came out in... The cover date was September 1963. Mm-hmm. And the Hulk first appeared in 62 in a six-month or six-issue bi-monthly series. Mm -hmm. 
so the final issue would have shipped earlier the same year. Right. Yeah, or at least been cover dated earlier that year. It may have shipped late 62. I'd have to check the specific dates. But the Hulk had appeared in Fantastic Four 12 by this time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he had. So he'd been used as guest stars because his title wasn't supporting enough sales to justify continued publication. But the fan letters that they got from it were mostly the college students that Stanley was trying to reach out and, and hit. So he kept trying to bring back the Hulk because he appealed to them. Yes. And uh, successfully did that through these first few issues of the Avengers. But mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the Hulk went through quite a lot of changes in this time. If you're familiar with the Hulk, probably you're familiar with the the childish Hulk smash. But this is definitely not that Hulk. This is not your father's Hulk. This is your grandfather's Hulk who has got coherent thought and quite good reasoning about him. Oh, yeah. As we actually see when he first appears here, you know, because Loki recognizes there's no evil in his heart. It's the problems that he has with humanity are mostly because of the way that they react to him on site. So mm-hmm. Loki makes him believe that there's a bunch of dynamite on a railroad trestle. And Hulk somehow manages to change the trajectory of his jump in the middle of his jump <laughs> to come down and, you know, crush the dynamite. But since the dynamite's not there, he crushes the trestle instead but then uses a boulder in his own strength to repair those railroad tracks before the train goes over it. Is it just me, or do you get a sense of Superman in this? Uh, no, it's not just you. I don't know if I would have gotten a strong Superman at the time. Now, in an episode that has been recorded but not released at this point that Mark wouldn't have had the opportunity to hear, John Wilson actually points out the similarities between the Hulk and the Golden Age Superman at the time of his creation. Mm-hmm. But going through this, to me, it really evokes the imagery from the 1978 film. So yes. I don't know if I would have thought Superman in 1963, because... No, not not then, but definitely with the hindsight of our generation. Yeah, it's he is similar to the Superman of 20 years prior to the publication, but not the Superman that was contemporary with this publication. Mm-hmm. But in any event, Loki figures, oh, that, that worked... Thor will come out to stop the Hulk now that he's heard about this threat, and nobody knows that the Hulk actually saved that train that Loki tried to get him to destroy. So now Rick Jones puts together the team brigade that he had assembled in the final issue of the Hulk, puts out a call to the Fantastic Four, but Loki doesn't want them involved, so he diverts the signal to make sure that Don Blake will hear it. But at the same time, the first part where they address the Fantastic Four got cut out, so... All that comes through is, hey, the Hulk's on a rampage, we need your help. So Thor assumes the message is for him, Ant-Man and the Wasp pick up the signal and assume that it's for them. Iron Man also picks it up, assumes the message is for him, because, you know, they're all superheroes who hear a call for help, stop the Hulk. That's natural assumptions. It is. I, I love the the Wasp and Ant-Man having a double catapult. Who says romance is dead in comics? Oh, yeah. Well, apparently Ant-Man, because... You know, Wasp is going, you sound like a stuffy bachelor again, and Ant-Man's saying, and I intend to remain that way. Yes. <laughs> and it may have been better for the Wasp if he had, but that's a time for another story, that's, and a story that uh... did not make the top 75 list. Oh. But in any event, so the the Fantastic Four do eventually recognize the message, although it was just delayed by coming in on the wrong frequency, and Reed is apparently incredible with these calculations, because he not only says, you know, yeah, we finally got the message, we know it wasn't intended for us, but we're busy right now. By my calculations, others should have picked it up. You know, if they don't get the job done, give us a call back. Yes, I love how smart Reed is in this. It's almost like the wizard or the thinker, whichever one it was, always calculated everything that would happen. Yeah, that was the mad thinker. From there, we cut back to the team brigade when Thor, Ant-Man, the Wasp, and Iron Man show up almost simultaneously. 
after Thor and Iron Man have to explain why they're traveling so slowly so that they do show up at the same time as Ant-Man and Wasp, yes. not hours before. <laughs> and a great use of uh, projector. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Ant-Man and Wasp have themselves projected on a wall so everybody can see them, but I have no idea why everyone can hear them clear as day. Yes. I, I I want to know how many times your science head explodes during this issue, because there are some great ones. There are, right down to, as we said, Hulk altering the trajectory of his jump yes. partway through. And in the end, you know, it's kind of what you, you have to do when you're reading an issue written by Stanley. Mm-hmm. Because Stanley, he's a science advocate, and he wants to get the science right. He did not have time to do the research nor in the background to to know what was right the first time. So, yes, as a teacher, he reminds me of that student who's, you know, in over his head, but really, really trying. <laughs> I've been that student many a time, yes. <laughs> yeah. For some reason, Loki decides that, you know, the best thing to do to get Thor out on his own is to make a projection of the Hulk to distract Thor and have him go attack the Hulk without the other guys because he wants Thor to face the Hulk alone. Mm-hmm. Only the projection is not really the Hulk and disappears. So all he really does is tell Thor that he's the one actually behind it all. Then Thor goes off on his own, which seems to be a theme in the Marvel Avengers movies as well. It is. It's Well, Thor was explicitly designed as the Superman killer. Mm-hmm. The the publisher of Marvel said, hey, we want a character that could take Superman toe-to-toe. Stanley said, well, you know, Superman's got nearly the power of a god, and he wasn't that interested in the godlike characters. He liked more feet-of-clay characters. So he said, well, okay, we want someone to compete with a god. Let's make him an actual god. Here's a basic backstory, and, you know, Brother Larry, come in, you go write this guy. So Larry Lieber wrote the first several issues of Journey into Mystery mm-hmm. with Thor. And, yeah, I... But I think it is the classic Superman in the JLA problem wherein you have one character who's so much more powerful than the rest, it's hard to come up with a threat with a threat that puts them all on equal footing. Mm-hmm. So what you do is instead is come up with two different threats on two different scales and split up your group. And that's what's happening with Thor in this issue. Cut from there to a circus where the Hulk is working as a performer. He's working as a robot. That's yeah. just a, a robot clown. A robot clown who juggles. You, you get, uh, has the Hulk ever used his juggling skills again? I don't know. Uh, he did in the jigsaw puzzle I had where he was juggling rocks <laughs> in the Arizona desert. Well, there you go. That's me taught. <laughs> the horse does not look happy. There's a horse, a seal, and an elephant being juggled by the Hulk. Yeah. How did he get the job? I don't know how he got the job. I don't know why the horse seems to be the, the least happy of that group, because we're talking about the Arizona <laughs> desert. Why isn't it the seal? That's true. <laughs> Or is it New Mexico at this point? I'm I'm not sure which state's desert it's in. <laughs> There's definitely a Jimmy Stewart. He must have been watching Jimmy Stewart uh, movies and thought, how could I disguise myself? Jimmy Stewart did that as a clown. I may as well do the same. Next page, you don't put a lot of commentary into the individual panel so we can get to the, the meat of the story, but mm-hmm. I swear that one of these patrons is in a dress that was an early design for the Scarlet Witch. I could believe that. It's just, you yeah. know, with, with her hat, her collar... When I first turned the page, it took a, it took me a little bit of a double take to make sure it wasn't the Scarlet Witch. Well, maybe it is. Maybe she's having a bit of R&R before she goes back to Magneto. Maybe. But yeah, this, you know, everyone's marveling about this robot. It couldn't be a real person because, you know, if they knew it was the Hulk, they'd freak out. And now he's holding up the cage with the lions and tigers and that trainer. But he's spotted by an ant who gets word to Ant-Man. So Ant-Man, Wasp, and Hulk take off. Although the Wasp, who keeps trying to get Hank Pym to marry her, 
wishes that this ugly Iron Man hadn't come, or the hideous Iron Man had not come with him, and it was the dreamy Thor instead. Mm-hmm. For someone who kept trying to get Hank Pym to marry her, she's commenting on every guy, and frequently commenting on how dreamy Thor is in these early issues. I, I think that's more a reflection of how Stan Lee sees women than anything else. Yeah, and I think it was later retconned to she was just trying to make him jealous to make mm-hmm. that first move. But uh, in any event, so Hank Pym has an army of ants eat up the ground from below the Hulk, <laughs> which just angers him. They try trapping him in a cylinder that doesn't work. The crowd is loving it, but the Hulk has anger issues, even though he's not really a, a rage monster yet. Mm-hmm. He takes off the clown costume and makeup and just takes on his own persona, manages to use the bellows to stop the wasp, but lets her go when Iron Man shows up and recognizes he's a bigger threat. They try to capture him in the safety nets, but he tears free, and they get out to the desert. And to be fair to the Avengers, they are saying, hey, it's like we don't want to attack you. We want to understand what's going on. We're here to talk. We don't want to be enemies. Mm-hmm. But the Hulk's experience with humanity, that usually isn't the case. So he has prejudged them based on past experience. Mm-hmm. Cut from there to Thor asking Odin's permission to go to the Island of Silence and face off against Loki. And, you know, it gives you a nice setup of the dynamic that they have in Thor's comic here, where Odin basically tells him, yeah, you're my son, but so is Loki. So what happens between you is between you. I'm not taking sides. Mm-hmm. A very different image of Loki than I'm used to. No, no, sorry. Uh, from Odin than I'm used to. Yeah, he's got a helmet on, which he didn't typically mm-hmm. have in the journey into mystery. But I'm wondering, just from like the way it's sitting on his head, was that always there? Because Jack Kirby hadn't started writing Thor yet, so I wonder right. if you know he was rushed to get this out, wasn't quite getting his you know o- Odin's head the way he wanted to to line it up with the artists who were doing Journey into Mystery, and just said, "Well, I'll put a helmet on him uh, and cover part of his face." Oh, fair enough. But anyway, Thor goes out to the Island of Silence after circumventing a lot of distractions that Loki has sent his way, you know, tangle roots and whatnot. And, you know, Loki is using trolls against him, a lot of deceptions, those multiple images that are a mainstay of the movies mm-hmm. and the way they work there that's in use here in abundance. But Thor has eventually managed to capture the real Loki by magnetizing his hammer. Yes. Because, <laughs> you know... Stanley understands magnets so well. <laughs> Back to Earth, the other Avengers are still pursuing the Hulk, and there's a plane that spots him and gives Iron Man directions. They end up in what appears to be a tire factory, and mm-hmm. it is 1963 because the tires are all white wall. <laughs> <laughs> and they just work for containment, but Thor shows up with Loki, who turns himself radioactive to make everyone back off so that only Thor can stand to be near him, although that shouldn't affect the Hulk either. But Ant-Man and the Wasp manage to use their insects from a distance to trap Loki inside a lead-lined container, which will last long enough for his radiation magic to wear off and Thor to bring him back to Asgard. And then the Wasp says, hey, wait a minute, you know what? You know, it's actually Wasp and Ant-Man who've already been talking to say we should stay a team and continue working together. The Hulk agrees to join. And prior to the movies, this was a one of the two issues when Hulk is an Avenger. He joins in the last two panels of this issue. And, spoilers, quits the team by the end of issue two. (sighs) And then, you know, the Wasp is throwing out suggestions for names. Her first suggestion is the Avengers, and Hank Pym says, nope, that's it. The Avengers, we're not taking any other suggestions. (laughs) And as much as it is a cool name, it really has, yeah, the concept of Avenging has nothing to do with anything they've done so far. Just a cool name. They just really wanted to be called Avengers. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe they're Steed and Emma Peel fans. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem of growing up in the UK. When somebody says Avengers, that's what they used to mean all the time. And you got too excited about, oh, you mean Hulk Thor? No, no, no. Steed and Mrs. Peel. Yeah. Or Purdy. She was my favorite. Yeah. And as North Americans know that, it was mostly from the terrible 1997 film adaptation. Oh, which is what the general populace thought of when they thought of the Avengers, which is why Joe Quesada was adamant that there will not be Ultimate Avengers when the Ultimate line started, and there was going to be the Ultimates. Oh. They dropped the name Avengers specifically because the North American Association with that film. Really? I didn't think it did that well or that known outside the UK, but that's fair enough. Yeah, that, that movie was a rather famous bomb up here because Ray Fiennes and Uma Thurman were at the top of their career, and were in a terrible film together. Yes. No, I remember seeing it once, and it wasn't a good film, but... No. Now, uh... now as far as the publication history of this, now there's a few, <laughs> few notes I've got here about Independent News, who was a distributor, wanted to expand what Marvel was putting out from 9 to 12 comics a month, and Martin Goodman said two of those comics have to be superhero comics. So it was the X-Men, a new superhero team. Superhero team sold well. And Daredevil. But Daredevil fell behind production. You're a Daredevil fan. What's the yeah. story behind that? Daredevil was co-created by Bill Everett. At least he was a big part of the concept. He and his wife enjoyed ethanol a little too much. Oh, right. It's why their daughter was born legally blind. It's why that issue is credited to Bill Everett, who did the line work. But it ended up with Jack Kirby drawing Daredevil, all Martin Goodman knew was, hey, this uh, Daredevil title, or the comic title and comic character name, are now indefensible because the Love Gleason Company had their own Daredevil character mm -hmm. starting in the late 30s, but they had gone under and the trademark was indefensible, so he wanted to get a Daredevil book out right away to lay claim to that trademark. Mm -hmm. And when it fell behind schedule, Jack Kirby did the designs, Bill Everett did most of the character work, and pretty much the whole bloody bullpen did the backgrounds in that issue just to get it out on the street. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, after that, it, it's unfortunate, really, because Bill Everett was also the artist who created Namor, at, written and drawn. Yeah, that's why the, the title originally shipped late, and why Bill Everett really only worked on the first issue. And Daredevil didn't really start coming into his own until issue 7, when Wally Wood took over, redesigned the costume so it didn't look like it was designed by a blind guy. <laughs> You know, as as great as Jack Kirby generally is, his Daredevil was a rush job. And right. I think it's somewhat telling that the Golden Age Daredevil actually had a handicap. In his first appearance in Silver Street Comics, he was mute. And he wore a yellow costume. And a couple issues in, they switched it to a red costume. And, you know, he was mute because of a psychological trauma that apparently becoming Daredevil let him get over. Because by his second appearance, he could speak again. With this, that's actually why Daredevil is blind, because Bill Everett was involved, said, well, the original Daredevil had this handicap, because he remembers from when it first came out, and he wanted to represent blind people like his daughter, who was legally blind. Can we make this guy blind? Mm -hmm. And that's probably his largest lasting contribution to the character, was the idea to say, let's make him blind. And they picked the color scheme to fit the original Daredevil. And then Wallywood redesigned him into the red unitard that has stuck so well. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've done a few adjustments. He's currently wearing a black costume in the Charles Soule series, but there are very few characters 
who have spent so much of their time in that one outfit. Mm-hmm. But that also meant that the Avengers comic was a rush job. Mm-hmm. How rushed, I, I don't know. I mean, the story paces very well, apart from the last couple of pages, where it's kind of, how on earth are we going to get out of this? Oh, we'll have a trap door, we'll have a something for him to go into, and that's it. And very much th- this comic was bound to happen at some point because the mm-hmm. uh, Justice League and um, before that Justice Society all had the the best characters come together and join. And Marvel had been doing this for the past couple of years, guests in different comics, specifically the Fantastic Four, where they had Ant-Man and Hulk and people like mm-hmm. that. One of, one of the things when I heard about that, that this was a rush job, was thinking, was this a comic that was the plot was originally meant for a Fantastic Four Thor crossover, and they just switched it about a bit. Now, yeah. you could probably see that a bit where the Iron Man, Wasp, and Ant-Man characters were the Fantastic Four, but you, you'd be hard-pressed to find any evidence, apart from my notions. It's tough, because sometimes they reworked ideas. Sometimes Jack Kirby was, at this point, still, he was a great company man, and he was fast. If the company needed something, he would pick it up. There were times when they didn't find out until the Friday deadline that the artist in hand, because, you know, they kept talking about the bullpen, but very few people actually drew in the Marvel offices, mm-hmm. right? Most of them drew at home. There were more than one occasion when some other artist would tell them on the day of the deadline, yeah, I don't have the issue. And they would go to Kirby and he would have a completed issue ready to turn in, penciled and inked by Monday. That is fast. That is incredibly fast. Kirby is one of the only pencilers in history who is known for outrunning his inkers. <laughs> At one point, they needed three inkers to keep up with Kirby's pencils. Yeah. When you consider how many comics now are late because of art, I mean, how many times have your, has your whole month been ruined because that comic could not come out in time? And what's the yeah. famous one, the, the Ultimate Wolverine Hulk? I don't know if it, yeah. I'm, are we still waiting for the last issue? Uh, no, that one did finish and that one wasn't art delays. It was written by one of the co-creators of Lost. Oh, right. Wasn't getting scripts in. But you know, you get your Brian Hitch on the Ultimates, for mm-hmm. example, as one where the art was slow. Now, to be fair to modern artists, the expectations of details, particularly in the background, have gone way up from Kirby's day. You go back to this a lot of times in the big fight scene. All you will have are the two characters and just a uniform color in the background. Mm-hmm. And today that doesn't fly. So the artists are expected to flat out draw more today than they were back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not to say Kirby at these rates, you know, if you had him draw in the level of detail they have to do now, he would probably still be one of the fastest artists in the industry. But I don't think he could go home on a Friday afternoon and come back with a finished issue Monday morning. You know, it could be more like a week to do a finished issue, which is still insanely fast these days. Yes. Oh, blame I mean, Bagley is probably known as one of the fast... Mark Bagley, I should say, is probably known as one of the fastest artists in the industry today. And when they started Trinity, which was the weekly series from DC where he was doing 12 pages per issue, they kept that pace up by giving him a couple months lead time to go through it. So he spent mm. 14 months or 15 months doing a 12-month series with 52 issues at 12 pages per issue. Mm-hmm. Still incredibly fast compared to most guys today. Yeah. But still not Jack Kirby speeds. What One of the benefits of the Avengers was there was no lead time to develop characters. Every single character has been seen before, including the, was it the Teen Brigade, who were probably yep. never seen again for a long time. 
Yeah, they did show up a little bit in the Tales to Astonish run. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, right. Yeah, it's if anything, that's probably the the biggest sign of how rushed the issue is. Instead of having a new villain or anything like that, they said, "Okay, we need something fast." It wouldn't surprise me if this is one of those ones where you know they said we need something in a hurry, and Kirby just ran with it. Especially since the original notion behind Fantastic Four was to compete with the Justice League, mm-hmm. because you know as. John Wilson and I discussed in that Fantastic Four podcast that, again, Mark has not had the opportunity to listen to. It's been recorded but unreleased. You know, the Justice League itself was not their highest-selling title, but it had a buoying effect on the other characters, which is what DC mm-hmm. was really shooting for, hoping that people would follow their favorite character in a Justice League and then start following others as a result of it. And Fantastic Four was doing extremely well for Marvel, but it wasn't boosting the other titles. Uh... So I think they took that initial idea... Slot together a cool-sounding name that was unrelated to the story, <laughs> and figured out a way to write an issue that involved all of these characters and showed it. It showed a bit of the status quo for everyone involved. Mm-hmm. Right. The only person whose status quo we don't really see is Tony Stark's, because Ant Man the Wasp mm-hmm. all they really had was, yeah, she wants him to marry her, and he's saying no, because back in these yeah. days he was still getting over his first marriage, and Wasp was a teenager who had a crush on the older guy. Oh, the 60s. Yes. Yep. Yeah, they hadn't gotten to the point where they managed to slip some things past the Comics Code Authority yet. I mean, I mean the coming together of the Avengers, you had the JLA, and one of the things that uh, Stan Lee saw was that they were all the same character. And bringing together mm-hmm. these five totally different, well, you've got a monster, an adventurer, a mythical warrior, a millionaire playboy inventor, a silly girl... And bring them together, and they had distinctive voices in how they spoke, how how they did things as well. And I think that was one of the benefits of the Avengers. The, to me, the Avengers is a perfect comic. I like to get more uh, spandex for my buck. Uh, you know, I like to buy a comic with a lot of heroes, and the Avengers has done that so well over the years. There's been low times and high times. And it's very hard to think of a character that was invented or created just for the Avengers that has had staying power. The Vision is the only one I can think of. All the rest were created outside the Avengers and then brought in. You know, you've got mm-hmm. people like Silverclaw or or Triathlon that didn't last at all. Yeah. Well, didn't Triathlon become the new 3D man? But again, in another yeah. Avengers title. Yeah. He just migrated from Avengers to Initiative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree that probably the the Vision is the only really prominent character created in and for the Avengers, Oh, with the possible exception of Jarvis. Because even though Jarvis's backstory is that he worked with Tony Stark, he didn't actually appear until his Avengers issues. Ah. But even then, he's true. a major character within the Avengers and within the Avengers only. Who, right. who seems to have weight problems. As far as the importance of this issue, it sort of springboards the Marvel Universe in a concrete setting where before it was meandering in and out of each other's titles, but here it's producing quite a Marvel-wide mega story that uh, a few issues down the line, Iron Man is getting uh, reprimanded for not turning up because of something that happened in his comic. So creating that whole Marvel Universe where DC had Batman, had his villains, Green Lantern had his villains, but here we have everybody's uh, a free-for-all for who the villains are. In fact, uh, by this time, Spider-Man had battled Doctor Doom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Daredevil's second issue, he was up against Electro. Mm-hmm. Right, he had- but that whole idea of a fluid universe that you could 
anybody could turn up in anybody else's comic where you've got the human torch who speaks at peter parker's school without having to fight anyone or in dr strange ended up in the care of dr don blake all all these things to, uh, to create this beautiful universe and this is the first concrete step of sticking a flag down and saying we are the marvel universe and anything can happen you know even beyond that immediate impact on the storytelling most people who know marvel now know marvel from the movies and even the shared universe concept that they're getting through is coming from the movies Uh because we didn't really have you know sure fox has the rights to fantastic Four, daredevil and x-men but to this point there's been no crossovers or interaction between them Mm-hmm. Columbia TriStar used to hold the rights to Ghost Rider while they held the rights to Spider-Man. No interaction between them. But when Avia Rad took over, Avia Rad used to own Toy Biz, which held the merchandising rights for Marvel action figures. And when Marvel was going into bankruptcy, he saw the writing on the wall and pulled his resources, and he's the one that managed to buy out the company mm-hmm. and bring it back to the forefront. And he did that by coming in with two stipulations. Number one, marketing was no longer allowed to dictate story ideas to editorial. So stories came from editorial, not from marketing. Mm-hmm. And the second move he made was get these guys on the big screen. So he started with Blade, then the X-Men, then Spider-Man, but when they were selling off the rights, you know, Universal owned the Submariner rights for a while, even though they didn't use them, they've reverted. They also had the rights to the Hulk. Lionsgate had the rights to the Punisher. All these characters were farmed out. One of the reasons that no one made a Captain America movie when people wanted to, was because Avia Rad recognized the power of having a shared movie universe and an Avengers franchise and would not sell the rights to Captain America unless you also bought the rights to Iron Man and Thor. Mm -hmm. Because those were the big three Avengers, and it was an all-or-nothing package deal. And nobody wanted to invest in that package because they had no faith in Iron Man or Thor films. Mm -hmm. So when Marvel was able to actually put enough money together to develop their own studio, the main Avengers characters were the ones they still had, which is why the Avengers became the backbone of their cinematic universe. Those are the characters they still owned and could use. And it's worked so well for them. I still remember the excitement when uh, Samuel L. Jackson appeared at the very end of Iron Man. I mean, that must have been what it was like to open up this comic and see Mm -hmm. all your heroes together, working together on the one page. Anytime you have your favorite people come together, traveling Wilburys, that sort yeah. of feel uh, when Magnum P.I. and Murder, She Wrote came together in the 80s. It was just such fun to see all these characters play together in the same sandpit. Mm-hmm. Oh, very much so. And it's, I don't know, we usually get into a lot more on the significance of the impact. I don't know how much detail we need to get into on this one. This is the start yeah. of the Avengers. Yes. How many Avengers titles have there been? It's crazy. They started branching out in the 80s with Avengers West Coast, well, Originally West Coast Avengers, rebranded Avengers West Coast at the suggestion of marketing because a lot of the retailers were alphabetizing the shelves. So that would keep Uh, the books side by side. Yeah. And Solo Avengers, which became Avengers Solo. Yeah. At the same time for the same reasons. Mm -hmm. And we've got the Great Lakes Avengers. We've got the Avengers Initiative, Avengers Arena. New Avengers, Mighty Avengers. Such a large playpen. Now everybody's an Avenger. Yeah. Which confuses me. Because trying to go to Marvel Unlimited and read uh, an Avengers story, you don't know which one to click now, because there are so many. And Avengers wasn't the popular, out of the big three teams, it wasn't the popular one for a long time. No. It was the highest selling title when Neil Adams came in, which is why they ended up having him on Kree Scroll War. Mm-hmm. But when Neil Adams came to Marvel to try their style, he insisted on being on their lowest selling book because he didn't know he could do it. 
where uh-huh. he was doing all the plotting and everything on his own. So they said, fine, we'll give you a stint on this X-Men book and postpone its cancellation because it was their lowest selling title and was about to go away. But after that, you have to work on our highest selling book because you're a big name. So once you've proven you can do it, then we want you on the Avengers because mm-hmm. that's number one. And that's why Neil Adams did a few issues on X-Men before going to the Avengers. And that following giant size X-Men number one and some of the other changes in the Avengers in the 70s and 80s, uh, we could point to a particular era of the Avengers where the editor-in-chief firmly believed that the Avengers were successful because the Avengers brand and not because they were using characters from their other stories. And some of the writers were finding that it was restrictive to write so-and-so solo book but have to reflect it what was going on in the Avengers or vice versa, Mm -hmm. that that particular editor-in-chief mandated a complete roster change on the Avengers into some new characters, some unused characters, but no characters who had their own titles. And that was one of the last decisions he made as editor-in-chief. And we can guess at some of the reasons, because Avengers sales suffered, and they didn't really start to come back until Kurt Busiek was writing. Mm -hmm. And even then, when Busiek left and Jeff Johns took over, Johns was still an unknown quantity. Yeah, so even though Johns' stuff was good, Jeff Johns was not a a name that would sell comics alone at that point. Right? He was early enough in his career. He was established enough that people said, yeah, he's doing a great job on The Flash, but right now The Flash was his only success, so there was no guarantee that would translate to any other title. And then Johns was followed by Chuck Austin. Mm-hmm. And yeah, after that, Avengers didn't really become the powerhouse it was again until Chuck Austin was still writing the X-Men when Brian Michael Bendis took over the Avengers. Yeah, I don't know if there's really much more to say about the significance and impact of this. This is where the Avengers began. It's just, it's like the significance of the Big Bang. (laughs) I suppose this would have been the Marvel Comics Big Bang, because this sort of influenced so much throughout the years. Yeah, this is it. This is where Marvel became a series, as you said, instead of having occasional guest shots, this is the first time you actually had a clear spine to point at. That was mm-hmm. connecting everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, apart from that issue with Iron Man, there's a number of issues where, you know, Thor is not available to see why I go check out Journey into Mystery issue, blah, blah, blah. Yes. <laughs> right. It it tied in directly with what was going on each month in the individual character books. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I think at this point, we move on to the portion of the podcast that I so blatantly stole from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. They're doing great stuff. You should all check it out. This is the part where we look for messages, morals, and meanings, and if there's sort of any hidden layers. Um, let's. <laughs> you can pick up so much uh, if you want to go great distances, uh, fly by your solo batteries because you want to. You'll be slower by transistor, which is kind of confusing because that could be one of the reasons I failed my electronics exams. Uh, best disguised as yourself as a giant robot clown. That's just frightening. But uh, of course, it's a united we stand. It's uh, we're stronger together, and even uh, a well-oiled team can achieve the impossible. And that that goes not just for what's on the page, but for the people who put it on the page, coming mm-hmm. up with uh, quite a good comic in such a short time. Yeah, um, when I first sort of got the essentials, I thought these early '60s comics are going to be rubbish, but I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah, you. Early 60s comics definitely read like early 60s comics. Yeah. But but they're, they're definitely not wee small things that have got very little plot in them. I mean, this is quite heavy in how much detail there is, how much plot there is, how much reading there is to do. Yeah, if, you know, as we, we know at the time, Stanley would come up with outlines and hand them to artists who were strong storytellers. If today's creative teams were handed this outline, 
they would come up with a great six to eight issue story arc. <laughs> that wouldn't say any more than this already has said. Yeah. You know, they probably would put in a scene where you find out how the Hulk got a job pretending to be a clown <laughs> robot. Okay, I'd, I'd buy that. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't see any other significant changes. They you know, might expand the introductions of each character when they first get that message and start pulling together. But mm. again, it would be expansion of existing scenes. I think Hulk becoming the clown robot would be the only inserted scene in here. Yeah, and Tony Stark, at the end of the first issue, Tony Stark would be standing on top of Mount Everest. Because <laughs> yeah. they did that in Essentials, basically. They took so long to get the team together. Yeah, that was Ultimates number one. And those of you who have listened to that podcast know that Steve Lacey and I decided he, they must have meant Volume 1 and not Issue 1. Because <laughs> nothing happens. <laughs> yeah, we get a great scene of World War II Captain America. Mm-hmm. That lasts all but the last three pages, which are, as you said, Tony Stark on a mountain. Mm-hmm. Beautiful so, stuff. <laughs> but yeah, I think this isn't... There's not terrible layers. Like you said, there's just that standard United We Stand team book thing, mm-hmm. which is probably because of the rush job. It's yeah. let's just get that first layer out and keep moving. Mm-hmm. So I think when we look at why it landed at this point in the rankings, when you look at entertainment value, at significance to continuity, and at those messages and morals, I think it's all about the first two. Yes. It's an entertaining comic. When you read 60s comics, as we said, there are, you can see the growing pains of the industries that people have learned better ways of storytelling, but they're better than you might suspect before you read them. Uh-huh. Absolutely. And yeah, so it is entertaining, even if it is definitely a product of the 60s, and the significance this has to continuity is tremendous. It, this isn't, you know, the standard example of Incredible Hulk 181 that made the list. In, uh, <laughs> it's a lackluster issue that first really showed us who Wolverine was, mm-hmm. and Wolverine is why it's here. This isn't one of those, right? If this was less entertaining, it would have come in less than number 12. Uh-huh. It's a quality issue, but yeah. Yeah. It's here, I think, by and large, because this is where the Avengers began. Mm-hmm. And where Marvel Universe began, in earnest. Yeah, this is where it all comes together. boom ba ba doom All right, so did you have any final thoughts? No, except uh, th- this is one of those comics that I read to the girls in the days that they wanted comics read to, and they enjoyed it uh, very much. Uh, it did take a couple of nights to go through, but you know anything with the Hulk in is good for children. Yep, it is. Okay. So in that case, uh, Mark, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Right. Those of you who are reading along at home, next week we're dealing with the original Secret Wars, the 1985 series, which has been collected in Ooh. trade paperback form, Comixology, and Marvel Digital Unlimited. Oh, that's nice. That's good. Yep. So yeah, that's what we have coming up for next week. So. Uh, before we go through the regular closing, Mark, why don't you let people know where they can find your stuff? Well, I've got two ongoing podcasts, one of them about my grandfather, John Adams, and his letters from the front. So John Adams' letters from the front. Uh, you can find that at johnadams.org.uk forward slash letters, where his he wrote home to his mother during World War One. My uh, more geeky podcast is with my two daughters. It's called Mark's Mess Podcast, where we spend time together... Me sort of letting them know a wee bit more about my geeky world and them sort of dipping their toe into it. All these can be found on my blog, marksmesspodcast.blogspot.com, on Twitter, marksmesspodcast without the T, or on Facebook, give us a like at marksmesspodcast. And of course, if you type in marksmess to either Google or iTunes, 
you'll get a lot of this stuff as well. Okay. All right. So those of you at home, please feel free to rate this and any other shows you listen to on iTunes and on Stitcher. It really does help the shows get noticed. Feel free to share links to the episodes with friends who you feel may enjoy them. And join our Facebook discussion forum where you can check out conversations that we're having about the issues themselves. And finally, thank you for listening. Daddy, has Hulk always been green? Well, no. Daddy, has Spider-Man ever been married? Well, that's quite complicated. Daddy, does Superman have a mullet? What? No, there's no Daddy, does Howard the Duck use foil language? Okay, stop. I must have done something wrong with your education somewhere along the line, but it's time to rectify that. You mean... Don't say it! You're doing another podcast? Oh no. Podcast? Yes. Mark's Mess Podcast. An ongoing podcast to introduce and inform my children about the world of comics, science fiction, and general geekery. Join me each month along with my eldest daughter, Charlotte. Who's my father? And my youngest, Catherine. Me! As we explore all this together. Find us at marksmesspodcast.blogspot.co.uk On Facebook at marksmesspodcast. And on Twitter at Mark's Mess Podcast without the T. A new podcast. On a new feed. Same old Mark. Ha! <sighs>